Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And this week on the show, we continue our Beeson Faculty Spotlight Series with another of our professors who's published a new book, this one on the early church fathers and scripture. Before Kristen introduces him, let me tell you about a couple special events here on campus this month. This week, our Global Center is sponsoring its annual Go Global Missions Emphasis Week. Our special speaker this year is the Reverend Dr. Brian Wright, president of Send Relief. He will preach in chapel on Tuesday, October 4, and then lecture on Wednesday, October 5. As ever, you are welcome to attend. And then later this month, at long last, our Beauty of God Conference on Preaching, Worship, and the Arts will take place here on campus. If you're a pastor, a worship leader, an artist, or an interested layperson, please join us on October the 24th and 25th. Find out more about both of these events at beesondivinity.com events. All right, Kristen, who is this esteemed faculty member sitting next to you right now? Thanks, Doug. We have on the show today, Dr. Gerald Bray. He is Research Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School, where he has served since 1993. Uh, he has been on the show several times before. He's no stranger. Um, we're glad to have him back as our guest today to talk about a new book that was published this spring on uh, church fathers and their reading of scripture, which you've already said, Doug. So welcome, Dr. Bray, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. Since you were on the show in this in the spring of 2021, I wonder if you can tell our listeners what you've been up to since we last spoke with you. Well, since the spring of, of 2021, I've been writing. Uh, I published a, a history of Christianity in Britain, in Great Britain and Ireland in the summer of 2021. And since then, uh, various other things have come out, including the book that we're going to talk about today. And I've been working on other things. I've done a commentary on the Book of Common Prayer, and I've also written an introduction to the relationship between philosophy and theology. Uh, which is now being read by the publisher, and we hope to see these uh, two things uh, appear sometime in the next year or so. So Dr. Bray is no slacker, <laughs> but we're focused on just one of the books that he's written recently today, How the Church Fathers Read the Bible, a topic of some interest to me personally as well. Uh, Dr. Bray, why did you write this book, and what were you trying to accomplish as you did it? Well, I've had an interest in the history of biblical interpretation for quite a long time. Uh, in 1994, I think it was, or maybe 95, um, I published a history of biblical interpretation, uh, which won a prize, actually, from Christianity Today at that time, and is still in print uh, 25 years later. Uh, so that was uh, my introduction to the subject, really. But I've also been involved uh, in the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, which was done by IBP, uh, again, nearly 25 years ago now, and the Ancient Christian Text series, 
which publishes um, commentaries from the Church Fathers. Uh, I'm one of the editors of that. So I have had uh, an involvement in this field for quite a long time. And I've learned over the time that uh, really you have to uh, produce an introduction to this because uh, it's a growing field of interest, but a lot of people don't know much about it. They don't really know how to get into it. Uh, and I'd been thinking about this for some time. And then Lexham Press uh, approached me and said, would you write a, a, an introduction uh, to it? And, and that's how this came about. Um, it's really designed for ordinary people, uh, basically, uh, to get them to think about uh, how the early church read the Bible. And uh, some of it, it, it depends really who you are. If you know a lot about the ancient world anyhow, uh, you know ancient Greece and Rome, uh, some of the uh, things that I say in the book won't come as a surprise to you. Uh, you know, there'll be things that you've heard before. Uh, but a lot of people don't uh, know a great deal about that. Or they may know some, certain things, but they've never really connected the dots. You know, they've never put it together in an overall picture. So I've tried to do that. And I've also taken specific texts um, from the Bible and shown how the church fathers read them, mm. uh, not just in theory about how they interpreted in general, but uh, specific cases, specific examples um, of it to show uh, how it was actually done. So for our audience who is listening and who may not be aware, who were the church fathers? Who are you referring to? And why should Christians today care about how the church fathers read the Bible? Mm. Well, yes, the Church Fathers technically are those whom are, who've been recognized by the Christian Church over the years as uh, teachers uh, of the Church, that is, interpreters of the Scriptures and formulators, I suppose you would have to say, of Christian doctrine, basic Christian doctrine. Today, the, the word is used in a slightly different sense, a broader sense, because we would include today people who in the ancient world were condemned as heretics or schismatics, which would not have been the case, of course, at the time. And we also include people from the Oriental churches, that is to say, uh, outside the Roman Empire, people from Armenia, Persia, and so on, many of whose writings were not known or hardly known until recent times. Um, so it, it is a bro slightly broader range. Now, we, we talk more in terms of ancient Christian literature uh, generally and pay less attention to uh, to the question of heresy and schism, although it's not ignored, but we have a, a different approach really to this, not least because some heretical writers, people who were heretic or who are heretics, at the time their, their writings were often recycled uh, slightly doctored and recycled under the names of other people. Um, Pelagius is a good example of that. Who was con he was condemned um, for his uh, for his doctrines, uh, but uh, his biblical commentaries, which are in fact very good, were were preserved under the names of people like Jerome and Cassiodorus and so on. And it's only in the nineteenth century that researchers, you know, going back, uh, realized who the true author was. So he's been kind of recovered, if you like, in, in this way. And just to reassure the, the audience, the, the texts as we have them have either been 
purged of any heretical beliefs that they may originally have contained, or they didn't contain them. Uh, you know, they, they may not have been there uh, in, in those particular things. So we can read these things uh, without really noticing the strange beliefs for which they were condemned. Um, so it's a complicated issue. Why is it important? Well, it's important because these are the people uh, who uh, who formulated the creeds of the early church, um, the, the basic doctrines of the Trinity, Christology, and so on. And, of course, uh, they themselves believed that uh, they were uh, deriving their beliefs and their doctrines from the scriptures. And so the way they read the scriptures is important. Uh, and, and so we need to know uh, how they read the Bible and whether their interpretation of the Bible is correct. Uh, and of course, in modern times, um, they've been criticized uh, in some circles for the way in which they read the scriptures. And so it's even more important that we have a look at it carefully to see whether those criticisms are justified. It's a complicated subject, but I, I think it can be said that, that the church fathers often did read the Bible in, in ways that we would not read it today. But in formulating Christian doctrine, uh, they stuck to, to what was clear and obvious and literal. Uh, and that was the basis of the doctrine. Then the oddities which we come across are usually uh, are the result of trying to apply those doctrines to texts that don't really talk about it because they believed that once a doctrine was established, particularly if it was to do with Christ, that ev everything in the Bible would somehow support it. And the idea that there'd be passages in the scriptures which didn't really talk about that was was hard for them to uh, to to absorb so they would they would read into texts uh, references to Christ which aren't there They're this sort of thing and so we can reject that but that doesn't actually change what they had to say about Christ because what they had to say about him was based on other texts. It was interpreting the the obscure parts of scripture in the light of the clear parts. And of course, that's a principle that we still follow today, uh, even if we don't pursue it in quite the way that they did. Uh, so it is extremely important that we should know what they had, they had to say. I have a question for you, Dr. Bray, that's mm -hmm. related to what you've just said. One of the things we learn from our teachers when we study ancient and medieval uh, approaches to interpreting the Bible mm -hmm. is that over those periods of time, the ancient and medieval periods, there was a, a pretty standard fourfold method of interpreting the Bible uh, that came to be practiced quite widely. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's referred to with the Latin word quadriga, the, the mm -hmm. word that refers to the four-horse chariot that mm -hmm. was supposed to carry biblical and interpreters mm -hmm. uh, forward. This is something that is not very common today, and it's something that even our Protestant reformers criticize to a certain extent. Probably something that our listeners need to learn a little bit about. Can you tell us about it? What was this fourfold method of interpreting the Bible, and what should we think about it today? Yes. Uh, well, uh, the fourfold method of uh, interpreting the Bible actually started off as a threefold method uh, initially, and it's usually attributed, the origin of it is usually attributed to a Greek writer uh, who lived in the early third century known as Origen, Origen, not Origin, um, who was 
certainly the greatest biblical interpreter of the ancient world, who believed that the Bible speaks to the whole human being, not just to the mind, uh, but to, to, to every part of us. And he also believed that human beings were composed of three elements, body, soul, and spirit. And therefore, that the scriptures could be interpreted in a way that corresponded to that, uh, so that you had uh, the bodily interpretation, which we would say was the literal surface interpretation, uh, you know, the history and so on of, what, of ancient Israel and, and, and whatnot. Then you would have the moral interpretation, or tropological, it's sometimes called, referring to the soul, that is to say, the moral demands put on uh, the human being uh, to behave in, uh, in a certain way. Uh, and then the spiritual interpretation, which applied to the spirit, uh, which was basically to do with our relationship to God. Uh, and interestingly enough, for Origen himself, um, it's the middle uh, interpretation, the moral interpretation, which was the most important uh, because it was the link between the material world, the bodily interpretation, and the spiritual world, that human beings have a soul which connects us with God in the, in the spirit world, but the soul also belongs to the body. And, uh, and so it's kind of like a mediator uh, between the material and the spiritual. So this is how uh, he started. The fourth sense of interpretation, the fourth level, was introduced later by, uh, usually attributed uh, to a, a writer called John Cassian, who lived either side of the year 400. Um, in other words, 150, 200 years after origin. And it's it can sometimes be called the anagogical sense, which is to do with the the life of the believer in heaven, you know how we uh, how we will live in the kingdom of heaven. It's eschatological. Um, Origen, of course, knew about that uh, that sense, but to him that was part of the spiritual interpretation. So what Cassian did really was divide the spiritual interpretation into two parts. Um, the spiritual interpretation to do with our relationship with God here and now on earth and uh, the fulfillment of this in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you see, if you, if you look at uh, a concrete example, for instance, um, take the, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is obviously a place, uh, and, and you can go there. It's a geographical city, and that would be the, the literal or bodily interpretation, you know, that it's actually there. And, but it's also used in the, in the Bible um, to refer to the kingdom of God, the presence of God, and, and indeed the eschatological reality, the new Jerusalem which will descend from heaven uh, in the book of Revelation. So the same concept of Jerusalem is taken right across the board. And what Origen would say is you have to look at the text to see how to interpret it in any given instance. And of course, for him, and indeed for, for most of the interpreters of the time, the, it's, the, the more spiritual the interpretation was, the more relevant it, it, it was to believers. Because, I mean, I suppose you could say the same thing today in the sense that we can study about Jerusalem as a city, you know, and go and visit it and so on. But 
this doesn't really make a whole lot of difference to our to our spiritual lives. Uh, you know, it's a lot of information that may be very interesting, but it, it doesn't uh, affect us spiritually. Whereas, you know, when we say things like glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God, uh, you know, the, the hymns as we sing them, and uh, the use of Jerusalem in this way, uh, you know, when Paul says the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all, uh, he's clearly talking in a, uh, a, transcend a transcendent way, um, uh, not about the physical city. Um, and this has a relevance to us because in that sense, we're all citizens of Jerusalem, of the heavenly Jerusalem, of the uh, the kingdom of God, if you like. And, and so we can make an application to our own lives and how we should live um by by using that kind of interpretation so that's the way in which they they operated now of course the difficulty comes when either if you start denying some of it uh, you know if you say for instance that the literal sense has no meaning i mean to get again to take origin as an example when he interpreted the song of solomon the song of songs he said, this is the, the literal sense, the way you read it, never existed. You know, this is, this is not, there's no reality there at all. It is, it is pure allegory, pure poetry from beginning to end, nothing to do with Solomon, the, the, the historical king, and so on. You see, you, you, you get this sort of thing. One of my favorites is, is Noah's Ark, uh, I, the way Origen interprets Noah's Ark. He doesn't quite deny the history, uh, you know, that there was a person called Noah who, who built an ark. He doesn't quite go that far, but he's not interested in that because, well, you know, you and I aren't going to find the ark or live in the ark or have anything to do with the ark. So how, how do we re relate to this? Well, Origen discovers by reading the text that the ark apparently, according to him, and this is a, a, a misinterpretation uh, of, of the text, uh, that it had three decks, uh, the upper deck, the middle deck, and the lower deck. Uh, and the upper deck was where the really spiritual people were. They were closest to, uh, to the heavens. They were uh, exposed to the heavens. Um, the middle deck was for people who had made some progress in, in their Christian lives, but you know still had a way to go before they reached the spiritual perfection of the top deck. And then there was the lower deck, who were the, basically the wild beasts who had somehow been, been brought into the church, but they, they hadn't got very far in their spiritual life. And, and this is how Origen interpreted it, you see, the, uh, and the, the domestic animals, the wild beasts and so on, uh, were interpreted in this way. So you, you have this. Now, we'd say, well, can we interpret it like this today? Well, obviously not like that, um, you know, in, in that sense. However, I, and I think we're, the, the thing that Origen said that, that is valid and that we do need to remember is that the church does in fact consist of different kinds of people who are at different stages of spiritual growth and that in the end, they're all in the ark. Um, you know they will they will all be saved regardless of how how spiritual they are um, uh, you know you don't have to be a, a deeply spiritual person and so the 
the thief on the cross, you know, who who said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus say to him? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, that thief on the cross wasn't exactly a, a shining Christian, uh, as we would understand it. I mean, he wasn't a great evangelist or anything like that. But he professed faith, and he was saved. And that's the point that Origen was trying to make. I'm imagining our our listeners, and probably not all of them will respond to this in the same way, but I bet many of them are thinking, oh my goodness, this sounds so strange, this way of reading the Bible, mm. and maybe even dangerous. So what's what's Dr. Bray telling us in this book? Does he, it, is this a book about a foreign way of reading the Bible that we shouldn't uh, adopt, or is there something about the way in which the fathers read the Bible that you want to commend? Should we, should we take something away that's positive uh, from their interpretation of the Bible? Yes, I think you have to go back to the basic principle, which is that the Bible speaks to, to every part of our life, uh, you know, to our physical life, uh, to our moral life, uh, to our spiritual life, and to our future life in heaven. Uh, it has something to say about all of those things and that we have to pay attention to that. I mean, we can't focus so strongly on heaven uh, that we ignore the way we live on earth. Um, you know, I mean, for example, I can't say, well, I'm not paying my taxes this year because I'm, I'm you know, praying that I'm going to heaven. Uh, I really haven't got time to do that, um, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. Um, and there, I mean, that's maybe a caricature, an exaggeration, but there are people who, who, who are not balanced in this way, you, you know, who ignore their responsibilities in one part of their lives, thinking they can justify this by concentrating somewhere else, uh, you, you know, and, and not get the whole picture. And the fathers, I think, were concerned to say, no, when you are a Christian, you are born again, you have a, a, a new life, which covers everything. Now, when it comes to the exact, like the example I've given you from Noah's Ark, of course, that's not, that's not the right way to read it. Uh, so the way they applied their, their basic principle to that particular text is wrong, and we can't do that. But we need, we need to remember that principle, at least, the Bible does address all these, these questions in different ways and in different places. And without trying to find everything in every verse, uh, you know, nevertheless, keep the whole picture in view and remember that uh, any particular text may be more uh, applicable to our spiritual life, uh, like the heavenly Jerusalem, for instance, uh, you know, rather than the, the, the city in, in Israel, uh, the physical city that's there right now. I mean, you're not going to get closer to God by flying to Israel and walking, you know, the streets of the old city, nice as that might be in many ways, uh, you know, that's um, that's not actually getting us closer to God. Uh, we don't have to go on pilgrimage uh, in that way, but we do have to pay attention to the spiritual truth that 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 it, it talks about. Readers, we want to encourage you to go to Amazon and search for How the Church Fathers Read the Bible, a short introduction, uh, which is published by Lexham Press. But before we move on, I wonder if you can um, answer this final question about uh, your book. And I'm just thinking about your readers. 
Uh, hopefully those who are listening now will read your book. Uh, what do you hope they'll take away from your book? I hope they'll take away the sense that um, here were people who were really trying to uh, make the Bible come alive uh, and be applicable to to their own situation. This is something that is a constant challenge, and perhaps more so today than ever before, because we have a very highly developed sense of history, of the past, um, and of the sense that the past is very different from the present. Uh, you know, and uh, one of the one of the problems I think is that the more you go into that and see how ancient customs were different from modern ones and so on, people can so concentrate on these details that they say, "Well, this doesn't apply to me. We don't live like that anymore." And you get you see this in the in in the modern world in, in many different respects. For instance. The whole, all the questions that come up to do with sexuality and, um, uh, you know, the behavior of people in, in, in that way uh, today, uh, you'll hear constantly, oh, well, back in the first century, in the time of Jesus, you know, people thought differently, they acted differently, they lived in a different world, uh, they didn't have the knowledge of psychology and, and, and all the rest of it that we have today. And so, you know, they don't really have anything to say to us. They, we, we, we can't submit to their way of thinking. And uh, this ignores, I think, the very important uh, principle that um, the truth is the truth in whatever context it, 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 it is uh, expressed, and that the Bible is what it is, and the Bible has survived and, uh, in the way that it has because it's not limited to the time and space in which it was written originally. It wasn't just a message to the original hearers. It was a message for all time, and that we, uh, our task is to is to show how that is so that actually human beings haven't changed you know we're still sinners in the way that the people were sinners in in uh, in the ancient world uh, we still need salvation jesus christ is still the answer to uh, our problems today um uh, what it, even though uh, we might express those problems in different ways fundamentally they are the same and uh, and the church fathers were aware of this. They knew that, you know, they weren't carpenters in Palestine. They weren't Jewish. Uh, they, they they were different in many ways. Um, and and yet the message which Jesus brought and the 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 salvation which he accomplished in his death and resurrection were just as meaningful to them as as they were to Jesus and his disciples, the the, the first disciples. And that's what we have to recover. That's what we have to emphasize, and not the the, the distance that that time uh, and and space may may uh, seem to have created. That sounds like a principle, Doctor Bray, that may apply to all kinds of um, topics and periods oh, of yes. church history. Um, of course, you've written many books, and you've taught many different kinds of classes, mostly in the history of Christianity or the history mm -hmm. of Christian theology, history of Christian teaching or doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, is there similar ongoing practical contemporary value to studying church history, no matter what the topic? How do you go about teaching people about the contemporary relevance of all the old stuff that you teach them about? 
<laughs> well, I think we have to realize that we are the uh, inheritors of a tradition which goes back, uh, you know, thousands of years. I mean, whether you, you trace it back 2,000 years to Jesus or 4,000 years to Abraham or even beyond that, uh, you, you know, to Adam and Eve and so on. And what you see is that each generation, each time, has its own approach to the, the, the issues, its own inherit, the inheritance that it has to deal with. We see this in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, you know, guard the deposit, um, you know, keep it safe, uh, pass it on to the next generation and so on, that this is something which is intended, you know, for each generation to, to uh, repossess, to, to, uh, uh, to learn from and to deal with. And that what we see um, over time, and and I've shown this in in uh, in different things. When I wrote my history of biblical interpretation, I took various books of the Bible uh, to illustrate what what happened at different times in history. Uh, that a book of the Bible which had been there, you know, all along, uh, you might say, suddenly comes to life. And, and speaks in a fresh way. You see this in the 16th century with the Reformation, um, that a, a, a book like Romans, for example, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, or Galatians, um, which had been there, of course, you know, for 1,500 years, and people had read them and, and so on, but suddenly they, they speak to people in a fresh way, in a new way, um, and, and it, it, you know, it comes to have a, a particular meaning that it might not have had uh, earlier. Um, you see this, of course, in the time of Jesus, the, the interpretation uh, given to the prophets, to Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and so on. That, you know, this day is the, are these things being fulfilled uh, in your hearing. So uh, what had been there for hundreds of years and, and uh, had been lying, maybe not exactly dormant, but, you know, hadn't been properly fully understood, should suddenly come to life and, and, and you know, make a, a, a deep impression. That's one thing. Uh, another thing I believe is that um, over time we see the, the theology uh, of the church, which again is there uh, in principle from the beginning, unfolds. It's like a flower, which, you know, like a tulip or something like that, which starts as a, a, an enclosed thing at the beginning. And then it, it opens up and you see the, uh, the, the leaves and the, you know, the, 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 the inner beauty of the flower. And we see this, that uh, in, in the very early church, um, the, the arguments and the, the, the preaching was to do with God the Father. Uh, you know, he who, as Jesus said to his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. When you pray, pray our Father. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's very much this, to learn to call God your Father, learn to think of him in this way. Um, and that the Creator God is the Redeemer God. Uh, it's not a, the Redeemer is not a different God, uh, you know, the, the, from the Father. That's the sort of early church. And then you have um, concentration on the sun, on, on what we call Christology, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the Son of God came to be a man, um, to live and to die and to rise again for us. And that, 
this was the, the, the intervention, if you like, of God in the world, the penetration of God into his world. Very, very important thing. Um, and this is developed, of course, later on uh, in the doctrines of the atonement and so on. And you see this, uh, you know, right through the Middle Ages, Anselm and people like that, and right to Luther, um, you know, the, the whole question of penal substitution and so on. And then I think in the, the third phase, the more recent phase, the, the whole question of the Holy Spirit. Um, who is the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit work? And if you think in those terms, I mean, the difference between, say, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, the, the quarrels of that era, were really about this. Uh, I mean, how does the Holy Spirit work? Does he work through institutions, through uh, rituals, uh, through external things? Or does he work in the heart and minds of, the, uh, uh, of individuals, um, more or less regardless of the externals? I mean, not totally disregarding them, but, um, you know, the, 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 it's the inner conviction which is more important. And that's where we are today, really. Um, uh, and uh, you can see this, and uh, th this has developed over time. This has caused, it's caused great division in the life of the church, but it's also caused renewal and uh, refreshment and expansion. So, uh, you know, we, we have to see that it hasn't all been sweetness and light, but it hasn't all been disastrous either. Um, you know, it's a complicated business. Uh, but we are where we are, and we can't we can't put the genie back in the box, as it were. We can't go back, you know, to a, an earlier time in history, pretending that these things haven't happened, because they have, uh, and and we have to live with that, and we have to deal with that, and we have to uh, try to interpret those things for the, our life and for the life of the church today. Uh, and if we don't understand the past and where we've come from, we we can't move into the future because we don't know where we're going. If you're listening and you're uh, very interested in church history, um, you feel like the Lord is leading you here, I just want to say that Dr. Bray will be teaching an elective on Puritanism this Jan term, and this summer we'll be teaching a course on medieval history and doctrine uh, we would love for you to come, sit in on a class, apply, be one of Dr. Bray's students, and partake in the life of our community here at Beeson. Dr. Bray, we always like to end these shows by asking our guests what the Lord has been teaching you recently that would encourage our listeners. So I wonder if you could end with a word of encouragement today. Yes, uh, it, it's it's always very hard to, to answer a question like this because um, I know what I think I'm learning. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure I'm learning. I've actually learned it, um, <laughs> but I think what God has been saying to me recently, and that's a lot of it, has had to do with my experience of the pandemic and uh, watching this and seeing this and living through it, as of course we all have in the last couple of years. And um, what I what I've learned, I think, is. First of all, to respect the sovereignty of God over all things. You know, I didn't want the pandemic to come. It was a big nuisance in my life. It ch changed a lot of things. 
you know, I would far rather have done without it. And I'm sure most people could say the same. Uh, but it was sent to us and it was sent to us by God to learn that he is the one who is the master of, of the universe. He is the one who controls things and that, you know, he can take a tiny virus that no one's ever heard of before, that no one really knows where it really, really where it came from and how it could spread in the way that it has and yet bring the entire world to its knees, you know, almost overnight. Uh, I mean, that is the power which is there. And I think it, it forced on my mind a realization that my life and your life and the life of all of us is in his hands. Uh, you know, we there's nothing we can do about that. We can't live as if God doesn't matter, as if God doesn't exist. Uh, and, you know, he, he will he will barge into our lives and he will make his priorities known whether we like it or not now starting with that that may sound very negative but actually it's not because you look at this and you say well what are my priorities what am i trying to do i've got my agenda i've got my wishes i've got my things that i want to do and god has closed those doors you know for whatever reason and i have to sit and be patient and wait on him and in doing that, sort of find how I can be of service within this context that I haven't chosen, you know, and, and had no desire to, to experience. But nevertheless, it has happened. And in different ways, I've seen how God has, has, uh, has worked in my life, giving me much greater patience, much greater sense of, of dependence on him but also opening doors of opportunity and, and so on. Um, I mean, I've been able to speak to people, my neighbors and, and whatnot, about life and death and about, you know, getting right with God in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to do otherwise because they wouldn't have asked those questions and the whole, the whole subject wouldn't have come up. I've seen here at Beeson. I mean, I've been able to be of service to Beeson in a way that wouldn't have wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the pandemic. I mean, you know that that sort of came in, and uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, I could be used in a particular way for a particular time, and I'm grateful to God for that. I mean, it wasn't planned. It wasn't you know particular i would something i particularly wanted and yet by submitting to his will and saying right lord this is you know th this is the time this is your time what do you want me to do with this time how you know how can i uh, serve you in this context so i've learned i think a lot about that and i look forward to the future because i say well i haven't got that much time left you know i don't know how much time but realistically, uh, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, may, but probably not much more than that uh, at the most. And what am I going to do with it? You know, how am I going to use that time? And uh, it's concentrated my mind very much on this. And I find myself praying much more for guidance, you know, that each day will be, be a day which will be consecrated to him, consecrated to his service, uh, and you know, Lord, make me use the time that I have that you've given me for for your glory. And I'm much more aware of that now, you know, on an everyday basis than I would have been, say, two or three years ago. 
I mean, if you'd asked me two or three years ago, of course, I would have said, oh, yes, naturally. I mean, you know, it, it's not, I would have said all, all the right things, but it's, it's come home to me much more, um, you know, on a daily basis. I'm much more conscious of it. And I felt his presence, you know, uh, uh, much more. And, and now I just say, well, uh, whatever tomorrow brings, and who knows? We, we don't know. Uh, but whatever tomorrow brings, I know that he will be there, and I, I'm, I'm trusting him more uh, for that, uh, and I'm more conscious of it um, than, I ha than, I, than I was before. So I thank God for that. And I just share that with people because everyone, I'm sure everyone I'm talking to right now has had the same general experience. Uh, it's, you know, the last couple of years have changed all our lives. And I would just say to people, well, uh, you know, have you realized, you know, that God is, has given, this is a gift that God has given to you, painful though it may seem in many ways, and it may be in many ways, nevertheless, uh, you know, uh, he's drawing you closer to him by making you more aware um, uh, of his power, of his sovereignty, and and of his love, that he wants to use this to draw you closer to him. And, and I would challenge people and say, well, you know, can you make that a reality in your life? And that's what I'm trying to do. It's a great challenge. Teach us to trust and follow you, Lord, and to number our days. You have been listening to Dr. Gerald Bray. He is research professor here at Beeson Divinity School. Come and join us sometime. Take a class with Dr. Bray. We would love to have you with us on campus. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we love you, we're praying for you, and we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.